Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. I must apologise for not being there last week. My computer motherboard decided to explode and in the uh, ensuing chaos I managed, or more correctly the person who repaired my computer managed to, uh, format my hard drive. So I was out of commission. Similarly, I won't be about next week as I am, um, as a work necessity, going to Venice uh, at the start of the carnival. It's a hard life, Michael. It's a hard life, but Gary, I know that you're going out to do some serious work out there. I know that most people would think that it's a rather lovely thing, but you'll probably get, unfortunately, it's one of those things I should imagine you'll be seeing the inside of some meeting rooms and some screens more than you'll be getting the opportunity to see events. But I do say, do try and see some of it, because it is one of the magical things on the face of the world. The great thing about going on business trips, for those who don't usually do them, is you get to go to very lovely places and stay in very lovely rooms from which you can look out at the very lovely places that you will almost certainly have no time to see. And even if you do, you probably won't want to, uh, because you're in the equivalent of a very heavily gilded cage. And the best thing, particularly if you're going anywhere like Venice and sometime near Carnival, you'll not only see the lovely place outside, you'll see all sorts of people engaged in jollifications and diversions and drinking and dancing and yokes and you'll be sit there thinking yeah okay can we we'll get the next slide up here as you can see we're looking at a 7.7 percent you're a hero gary and let nobody say otherwise we've been talking a lot about the uh, protests that are being on outside going on outside uh, direct provision centers tds uh, and councillors offices things like that and we've covered a lot about them michael mostly about the media coverage of them about the claims that they're being infiltrated uh, by the far right all of that sort of thing and i think we've given a very fair accounting of them overall as i think gripped has i think we've been pretty much the only people who've gone out and actually talked to these people and and listened to what their actual complaints are as opposed to trying to put our own complaints into their mouths. I think that's true, Gary. I think there's a point worth making. Sorry to talk over you there, but one of the things that is when you when you when it's pointed out to you, it becomes incredibly clear and obvious, but it is the fact that when so many of the, the bits of reportage that we see from other people about this, about the, the heart, is the fact that we're not seeing them actually talk to the people in the protests. You're not actually seeing them give an opportunity to the people that they're talking about to say why they're there or to explain what their concerns are, what their worries are, what their beliefs are. And if they are, in fact, horrid xenophobic types, nasty racists or whatever, to, to expose themselves. And if you're selling a particular line, the fact that you're not willing to give these people the opportunity to expose themselves to the nation makes you wonder how confident they are that that is, in fact, what their agenda really is. And there has been a remarkable absence, do you not think, of people being interviewed outside of grid, people being interviewed, people being given an opportunity to say what they're about by the other by the other media outlets. And I think that that in itself is telling. I think to be fair to some of the other media outlets, um, and we, I know we've talked about this before, is that a lot of their people won't talk to them because when these things started... There were one or two interviews carried where the reporters either got exceptionally fortuitous or deliberately only broadcast the interviews they did with people who seemed incredibly ill-informed, which from us sending our own people down has not been the general person at the protest. So I think that soured people quite heavily. And of course, the calling them racists definitely didn't help. So I just wanted to say that not as a sort of self-congratulatory thing, but to contextualise what I'm now going to say, which is this, 
from talking to people who have been at the protests in various parts of the country and have gone to multiple of them either to observe them or to take part, the general thing I'm being told now, and I don't go to protests myself because I don't like having that amount of people around me, so I'm, you know, there is a bit of distance here. So the view that I'm being told now is that increasingly on the ground, the mood is becoming sourer. Partially because people feel like they're being ignored, partially because there is a justifiable anger, and partially, I think, because there are so many stories circulating about allegations of migrants being involved in crimes, allegations of of terrible types, Michael, of of rapes, of gang rapes, of of assaults. Now, we've checked most of those with the guards. The guards have, uh, in many of those cases, not all of them said that they've had no reports like that. In others, they have verified that certain things have happened. The general consensus from the people I've asked is that the mood on the ground is getting to about the place where something silly could happen. As in someone gets, you know, a story breaks, unverified, claiming a rape has happened, and someone firebombs something. Mm-hmm. There is a legitimate concern that that is where things are starting to move. That would be bad for everyone. Absolutely, yeah. I, and I, it's obviously a very different context, but I think that the central psychological truth is the same. When Back in the day when I used to do canvassing with people, one of the things we used to say to people who were new canvassers was, try not to do too much talking. If you get if you meet somebody who is very agitated and very angry and very resentful over whatever, let them talk and let them say what they need to say. Make it clear that you've heard what they have to say. Make it, make it clear to them that you've understood the nature of their concern or their worry or their complaint. Leave that house, leave that doorstep with the sense that the person feels that they have been heard. Most of the time, the anger that people feel in in a democracy like ours is when they don't feel they have been heard. And I think that's what's happening for a lot of these people here. And I think what they what needs to be done is not some kind of facile attempt, but actually a real attempt for politicians to go out from from the doll, from the councils, whatever, to go out and actually genuinely, respectfully, humbly engage with these people and talk to them listen to them, explain to them what is happening, explain why it is happening. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to work for everybody. There's going to be a certain hardcore people who are going to have a certain position that's not going to be reconcilable. But I do think when it comes to the levels of anger, and I've, I've heard the same things that you were talking about, Gary, and I've seen a lot of the videos that are going around of these protests, which where you can feel that that, that level of anger is going off. And, and, and as you say, I mean, all you need now is some hard story to come out in the words of Mark Twain, you know, was it a, a rumor can a lie can be halfway around the world before the truth has got its boots on. If in situations like this, to the discovery that what terrible thing was supposed to have happened actually never happened at all, it very often comes too late. So we don't want to be in the position where we're saying, well, absolutely, this is a terrible thing. This shouldn't have happened. The people who are responsible for it need to be taken, need to be found, they need to be arrested and convicted and punished, and that will be fine. And if something were to happen, that's what we would say. But we want to get to a point before that. And I think the only way you're going to do that is by actually listening to people and talking to them and not in a way, not lecturing them, not telling them what they should be thinking or what the right thing to think is, but to absolutely let them feel that they have been heard and actually hear them rather than let them feel like they've been and I don't think there's been quite enough of that. Yet. And may, I don't know, maybe if, if you're to talk to a TD, Gary, 
or a member of the government, they would say, well, no, we've tried, we have done our best, we, 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 there's no more we can do. And maybe they genuinely believe that, but I, I, I think they need to make more effort. I think the, this goes back to something we've talked about quite a lot on the podcast, which is the loss of trust in certain mainstream institutions, which yeah. I think generally when we've discussed it, we've generally come from the position that that loss of trust is you know, the absolutely foreseeable consequences of the way people have decided to act. But it creates a real problem now, particularly in areas where, you know, you don't consult with the localities because you know the localities will say no. So you just airdrop people into them. And that sets them up to distrust everything else you say, because it's clear you're not an honest player. So if the situation is starting to get somewhat nasty or a little bit more aggressive and you try and come in, well, you might be totally ineffective because no one believes you anymore. And I should say there, when I said, you know, something happens and someone firebombs something, I'm not predicting that something will be firebombed. I just mean that something will happen, a story will come out that is just legitimate enough to be true and just horrific enough to cause action and someone will do something violent. Legitimate enough to be, be believable, even. It doesn't even necessarily have to be true, but it has to be credible within the context. And once that gets around, yeah, then something something hard can, can happen. I did actually hear in Finglas that, um, because when I'm talking about this uh, growing level of anger and frustration, it doesn't seem to be coming from what you would call the, what or what the media would call the far right agitators. It seemed to be mostly coming from the people themselves and a growing sense of frustration. Now, some of these people, depending on the rhetoric, may not be helped, but they don't seem to be a major influence on it. I think back, Michael, to the interviews we did with the people in the lighthouse, um, sorry, the, the lighthouse um, residential blocks, where they were saying that they could no longer send their children out to the common area, that there was video of just blood everywhere, that there were gangs of men hanging around doing drugs, that people who had been looking to sell their homes had now been told they were totally... Un- you know, unsellable. And just the impact of multiple things like that happening to people, it's not surprising that you would find people becoming so frustrated that they become volatile. Now, that's in no way, Michael, to morally condone anyone who does anything. Anyone who does anything bears the full moral weight of what they do and should be punished absolutely appropriately. But what I'm saying is it's not surprising. And it's not surprising to the extent that the government should have engaged before that. You don't wait until right before something happens to engage. You engage early so that it never gets that far. Also, Gary, I mean, these are communities which may already have felt underrepresented in the sense or underheard anyway before any of this happened. And also, they, I mean, other political parties may have fed into that sense of being excluded or alienated or underheard. And because until this happened, it was a good political strategy for certain political parties in these areas to do that. It was working. It was creating a sense of being unconsidered and being, in a sense, victims. Not participating in the wider success of the nation was something which worked very well politically. So, But the problem is that once you create that sense within a community and then something like this happens, well, then you, you, you have a problem now. And also then, as you say, we go back to the fact that we have a widespread collapse in trust uh, in the institutions. And we know from this, with, from surveys we've discussed before here that both politicians and journalists come down, very down, far down the list of institutions and people that are trusted in the in the nation and i suspect if you went to 
if you were to narrow those polls down to the the areas where these problems are happening today, that that trust may be even lower than is reflected within the national polling. I just to to give kind of a, a behind the curtain little bit of a comment here, Michael. I don't know if this is how you feel about it. I find this a very awkward thing to discuss because in general, the protests have been peaceful. The people have reasonable objectives. I don't agree with everything about them, but it is a good old-fashioned working-class protest taking place for legitimate political complaints. And even to talk about things like the environment becoming a bit more volatile, the risk of violence. They're awkward things, I think, to talk about because it's nearly by talking about them, it sounds like you are either predicting violence, condoning violence or condemning violence. It's very difficult to just say, this is what I hear. And because this is a news podcast and we want to inform you about things, at least to the extent that we're aware of them, we're going to mention it. I don't know what to do with it, though. I don't know how best to phrase it. And nor do I wish to condemn or condone anything that's being done. But it's just an odd odd one to package and kind of explain to people without doing any of that. It is a cla- yet another one of those things that where we just feel like it would have been better if we had not got to where we are in the first place. And also, you know, what? It's, what's frustrating about it, Gary, is it's all, in a sense, so terribly predictable. Is there not a sense that what's been going on as a policy that this, it was almost inevitable we would get to a place like where we are now. But there was this constant sense that we, we like you say, the dropping, you, you don't consult why. You don't consult because you think that if you do consult, you're going to get a response. And the response is one you don't want. So instead of consulting, you just drop in the middle of the night. That's been going on for some time now. And it has never met with a positive response. You know, very often things settle down and people get on with it and people engage and people integrate and it's okay but the problem is that maybe one of these days it won't be okay i mean yeah you feel like if you talk about things that might happen that we get into conjecture and it sounds like i don't know that almost by talking about it you're in some sense bringing it on you're inviting it by saying it out loud and let's hope we're wrong i mean let's hope vehemently that nothing uh eventuates of, of a violent nature and to be honest, I, I do. I actually have a great deal of faith in 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 people. I think that most of these people actually don't want anything like this to happen. The problem, I think, with all of these things, is you just need one person. And should anything happen, there will be a great deal of people who will be exceptionally happy that something happened, because it will be used to one delegitimize any protest of that type. There will be people in the NGO sector who will use it to talk about the need for an expansion of the funding of anti-far right and hate speech, all of this stuff will get a boost because of it. They will dine off the smallest instant of violence for God knows how long, as long as it's got all the right pieces for them. I suppose, Michael, we, we should move on to that. And I have a, uh, I have a happier topic to discuss. Good. So I, I finally got around to signing up to Finnefall's press office releases there the other day. And you might think, Michael, you've been working as a journalist for years. Why did you never sign up to it? And it's because I don't tend to write the happy stories. I don't. I do most of the, the, the more most of my stuff is more investigative, which means you're never following press releases. They're meaningless to you. But I thought, you know, I should um, I should just sign up and see what it's like after all these years on the outside. Michael, it is a it is a roller coaster. I should have done this years ago. It's incredible. It's just that 
everything about it is is just fantastic. I mean, they sent out a press release there the other day about how there needs to be a call of deer. Yeah, okay, that's a policy. But then I cannot, I can't remember which Finnafal senator or TD it was. But then the quote given from the person they were choosing to represent this vehicle was about how they'd recently hit a deer with their car, and therefore there had to be a cull. Well, or, or I would say, to be fair, not so much they had hit a deer with a car, but the car had hit their a deer had hit their car. And that's it. I can tell you, it's a, it's a frightening experience. I was on my way driving over the the road from Ballet Murphy to to Kiltelia one night coming up from Kilkenny and out driving in the middle of the night, and suddenly this deer jumped out in front of me and hit my car. And I can tell you, it was it was not a pleasant experience. Did you demand we kill all the deers? I did not go on a killing spree, nor did I demand that the state engage in some kind of killing spree of all the, the deer located somewhere between Wexford and Carlow. No, I did not. I get what they're trying to do. They have a policy and they want to personalise it. The problem is that they've personalised it too much to where it sounds like the entire policy is based on this Finna Faller hitting a deer with a car. Or vice versa. There was there was some combination. He's now filled with a desire for revenge against all the deer. And, you know, this is exactly what we don't want to do, Gary, which is blame the whole population of all the deer just because of the bad actions of one deer. And there was another one they sent out. This was all last week, by the way. Everything I'm going to bring up to you now is from last week, uh, the last seven working days. Um, they sent out a press release that had the name of Finnafal misspelt three different times in three different ways. I hold on. The Fields Press Office sent out a press release where they misspelled Finnafal. Actually, you know, Michael, I, I know you were involved with Finnafal for many years. You've got an awareness that I don't. So maybe I'm wrong. So you can tell me. Was the name of Fianna Fáil ever Fianna Fagel? No, not to my knowledge. I don't think... There is, by the way, a fada over the G. I think that's an interesting movement in orthography, putting fadas over Gs. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the, the, they sent out an email which was which was headlined, Fianna Fagel Transport Police Motion Passes in Shannon. And then in the subtitle, they called Fianna Fáil Fianna Fáil. Gary, are you absolutely sure you've got the Fianna Fáil, the actual official Mount Street? Fianna Fáil press office and not some sort of version of Waterford Whispers or The Onion operating in Ireland. Well, I mean, it does have Senator Mary Fitzpatrick's name on it, so it's entirely possible that she called Fianna Fáil Fianna Fagel for some historical reason. I, not being intimately involved with the party, don't understand. Fianna Fagel, I think that. You know what? You know, the party's been talking about a rebranding for a long time. I don't know. Fianna Fagel, I think it has something to it. But that is not the best one, Michael. I'll give you the best one. And I think, you know, we've got to put ourselves in the mind of a Fianna Fáil TD before we talk about this one. You've had a bad time of it. Like, you've had a bad time of it. True, you know, 2011, into Michal Martin, there's been the endless leadership debates. You're just out of government. You are, you know, you're on 15% in the polls, which if you're a long-time Fianna Fáiler is um, basically zero. Yes. And you, you know, you've been working on constituency work, Michael. You have been scrabbling, just trying to claw that vote back so that you can, you know, get in again and continue the glorious Finna Fall legacy. Now, this is a statement that went out on Tuesday of this week to every major media organisation in the country and gripped. And I would hope it went to the office of every Finna Fall TD because I love to imagine the look on their face as they read this. And Michael, it's a statement by Senator Lorraine Clifford Lee. It's always a good start, Snugs. Lorraine is always a good start. 
Now, I, I can read you from this, Michael, you know, to, after this, but let me sum it up for you just in a line. Women who murder their children, should they really be in jail? Uh, okay. Lorraine sent out a, a press release on neonaticide and infanticide, saying that she was going to go to the Taoiseach, the Tanisha, the Minister for Justice, the Minister for Health, the Minister for Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth, to tell him that we treat these women too harshly, Michael, and that our laws, which would see these women jailed for committing infanticide, are Victorian and cruel. Nice. We need to have a trauma-sensitive response to infanticide. Presumably Lorraine has reasons why. Lorraine was recently at the Court of Appeals in a tragic case involving a young woman who concealed her pregnancy and concealed the birth of her child with what Lorraine said was a tragic outcome. And based on that, Lorraine has decided that um, we've got to, you know, look at infanticide again. Real understanding, because we actually did something on this quite some years ago, I remember, is that the courts don't tend to be, put it this way, the, the courts tend to treat this kind of crime very differently, say, than some fellow who comes up behind some old Irish pensioner and beats them across the head to get steal their pension. I mean, this there there is a degree, I think, historically, isn't there, of, shall we say, sensitivity uh, towards this kind of crime? It's, this, it, it's not that you're likely to end up with a sentence of 30 years to life or whatever. I mean, it is, these, these are, generally speaking, pretty horrible situations. In, in Ireland, the courts have been very, very, I would say, understanding of the complexity of some of these cases. So in the case Lorraine Clifford Lee is talking about, the woman at the centre was sentenced to three years and three months, with three years being suspended. Now, that was appealed by the DPP, but the Court of Appeal upheld it. So that's kind of, like, the courts have been very responsive to this. So his sentence was three years and three months, with three, three years suspended. And that was the basis at which the senator decided that the courts were being insufficiently understanding uh, of these cases. Yes. And particularly what she wants is neonaticide, which is the killing of an infant within the first 24 hours of its life, to be separated from infanticide. And she doesn't come right out and say it, Michael, but the entire tone of this statement, it's quite a long statement, is that Lorraine is of the opinion that the Justice Department is not the correct apparatus to be dealing with these things. Or sorry, not the Justice uh, Department, but the courts and the legal system. And I think you can make a lot of arguments around this, Michael. And there are absolutely tragic cases that happen here. Many of them. Um, I mean, I, you could probably say all of them because it's the killing of an infant. But some of them have been, I think what anyone would call, horrific crimes. And some have been more tragedies. But just on the general face of it, I wouldn't have thought Fianna Fáil is polling so highly that the fight it would want to have right now is we should legalise infanticide. I just don't feel that will play well with a rural population. On the face of it, I wouldn't have thought that it was the hill you wanted to die on. And also, and I don't say this glibly, I mean, Fianna Fáil is the party which, when polled, tends to have the highest number of its voters who are from that cohort of what we used to call pro-lifers. This doesn't seem to be a, a policy that would particularly appeal to them. I mean, I can understand. I mean, but in a situation like this, one of the first things any court is going to order is a psychiatric evaluation of 
the accused anyway. That'll, that's absolutely simple and basic. There will be a, there has to be a psychiatric evaluation. And presumably the courts will advance on, on the basis of that. I would also point out this, Michael. This, this statement explicitly says, after talking about how neonaticide um, is not treated any differently from infanticide, and says the punishment of women by way of a custodial sentence must be reevaluated in light of recent research. But it then contains this line. It is time for a more humane and supportive approach that cares for all women and infants regardless of their circumstances and histories and values their lives equally. Now, were I writing a statement about why neonaticide and infanticide, I would probably hesitate before you know, putting in the phrase and infants into that part. It is also, on the face of it, an odd contrast to, to say that at one hand, and then to say that the lives of the infants should be valued equally, um, when you don't seem to be doing that. You seem to be very explicitly not doing that. The senator has given a lot of thought to this. As she said, she's going to go to the Taoiseach, a long list of people. She has recommendations for the Adoption Authority, uh, for the Press Council, that it should work to develop guidelines about reporting on uh, concealed pregnancies, that the Guard should be involved, that the Law Reform Commission should be involved. Really, everyone should be involved in this. I've got to say, is this a big problem in Ireland? I mean, I would, each in each individual instance of a crime like this is a great tragedy for the those involved. So, I, but I, 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 I can't. Um, I don't imagine from from what my reading of the newspapers, and I tend to read them fairly closely, is that this is like a plague sweeping across the nation. Well, I can I I can see that you can go along and you can look that you can look at the details of a case and you can feel terrible sense of compassion and sympathy for the for the woman involved. I can absolutely understand that. But it seems to me surely that that's best left to the the discretion of the courts. Now, Gary, maybe not, maybe she's right, maybe we have a singular problem with our judiciary. Maybe we have a fundamental systemic problem with our whole court system that it's just not working. I don't, I didn't have the sense that that what in this particular case that that was something that we I, I don't know I, I, it just seems like a bizarre notion it I think there's there's two things she talks about and she kind of mixes them together one is is the concealment of a pregnancy which is exactly what it sounds like and is considered a crime on the basis that the state has certain duties towards a child if they don't know the child exists they cannot do those things and then she just goes on to neonaticide and infanticide which are also crimes but there is a little bit of well we shouldn't have you know concealment of pregnancy shouldn't be a crime oh and also these things shouldn't be crimes either and like those are those are very different arguments there's i would have thought of a, a fairly serious qualitative difference between those two things i, I would point one thing about concealment of um concealment of a pregnancy one of the ways in which it's used is to refer to um not just where the pregnancy is, is concealed from the authorities and you have a child secretly, but also where there is a um, stillbirth, Michael, or if the child dies shortly after birth and you just never report it. Uh, and part of the reason it's a crime there is because if you just secretly have a child and then it stops living, there is a question of, well, exactly how did it stop living and when you, you know, were you involved in that process? 
that wasn't actually a happier topic at all. No, it was not. <laughs> I, I feel like I was expecting something. Well, and I ended up having a brick thrown at my head. I feel I, I feel like I set it up with a lot of levity and an assumption there was never going to be a series of jokes. And instead it was just, no, it's it's just a conversation about dead children. Generally speaking, Gary, not a barrel of laughs. Shall we move on? Michael Higgins thinks there shouldn't be borders. Yeah, well, the, I'm sitting here thinking there shouldn't be Michael D. Higgins, but there you go. What can you do? What what was the call? You told me about this story that he said he dreamed of a world with no borders. What was the actual context of this? Climate, Gary. It's all about climate. Is the president not meant to be non-political? I thought his comments about how there should be no homework probably crossed the line. And now he's out saying there should be no global borders. Homework one, I thought. You know, to be honest, that's something that's been going on for years. I, do you know the thing about the non-homework thing that really got me was... I have no particular view on it. I'm slightly in favour of homework. Having worked as a teacher for eight or nine years, well, more really, but anyway, certainly continuously really, I tended to find that the students who did best were the ones who did their homework. But then again, that may have been a self-selecting ha- sample that simply the people who are more likely to be good at doing something are also the kind of people who are likely to do their homework. I don't ban. You see, he wanted to ban homework, Gary. And surely... If you want, you can say, okay, let's let some schools not have homework and other schools have homework and different schools have different approaches. Different schools have different pedagogies and that's okay. And then the parents will look and see which schools are the most successful, where the results are the best and where the children come out and they can do their ABCs and they can read and write and do their sums and know their 10 timetables and say, okay, that school, those kids can do the things I want my children to be able to do, and they seem to be reasonably happy and content in their school, so I'm going to send my school, my children to that school. And uh, eventually, by a process, the, those schools where there is no homework because that's a good idea will become the dominant template for pedagogy in the country. You don't have to ban things. What is it about these people when they, they decide, oh, that, I don't like that, let's ban it. The speed at which they go from I do not like to I want to ban is terrific. Everything has to be banned. What is it with these people and banning things? I thought they were supposed to be the liberal, progressive, let let it all hang out. Let's smoke a doobie and have a threesome kind of people. I mean, and yet they want to ban everything. I don't get it. I don't understand them. Why not? But no, as regards the, the, the borders, the thing is, Gary, because of climate change, we can't really think of a world with borders anymore. Now, you might say, well, what's got, sorry, where, how now? What's that got to do? But apparently it's, there, there, there are people drowning in the Mediterranean because of climate change. And we have to accept that, you know, I don't know, maybe we're responsible for the climate change or something. Michael, just to put forward a somewhat controversial point. I'd say there are people drowning in the Mediterranean because of the policies of the countries that decided that they would pull people out of the water uh, if their boats failed, which in a not, I was going to say hilarious, but more actually awful and tragic way, led people smugglers to uh, use boats that couldn't actually make the crossing. And and that, that, at least to some degree, certainly did happen. I mean, back in the day, when back in the early 90s, when you saw... explosion of people crossing coming across over to uh, to Italy and not just Italy but certainly Italy when I was there and uh, I was talking to actually somebody recently who'd been down in Sicily down in Lampedusa and they said the whole thing has just gone bad 
it's just haywire down there. There is no rhyme or reason to it anymore. The, there is no control. People arrive. They may or may not be identified. They're released out, and then they continue on their merry way, probably to Germany, maybe to Sweden, maybe to the UK, maybe to Ireland. Who knows? But uh, the system has broken up completely. Uh, yeah, Gary, I, I know the argument about you know, whether or not it's a, by putting those boats in there to pill where the, the the traffickers have decided just to use the most ancient watery pieces of junk they can find, take the money and then just dry, drag them three miles out into the Mediterranean and then ring up whoever happens to be close by and say there's a ship here and it's sinking, please come and collect them. That is an, that is a draw. I go. I say for further if you want. I I would also say partly, it's because of many of the countries from which these people are fleeing have operated systems of government based on the economic policies and ideas which Michael D Higgins has championed for half a century and has produced nothing but tyranny, poverty, and death. Rather than those countries where, in fact, they have produced they've pursued other sets of governance policies based on the principle of something called the market and competition and private property and such nonsense, and has produced countries of wealth and prosperity and peace and calm, at least relatively speaking. So I think that while, yes, the issue about the boats is one thing, I think that socialists and communists and Marxists generally are on the third world. And let's face it, Michael D. has many, many friends in the third world who have pursued these policies and have produced nothing but... Do you know that Venezuela is now vying with Haiti for being the poorest country in Latin America? According to certain metrics. Venezuela, Gary. And remember remember the iconiums that we heard from, the, from Michael D. Higgins about Hugo Chavez and the wonderful miracles of the uplift of the poor in Venezuela? But it makes so much sense, Michael. It just never seems to work. Just never quite see it's working. Joe Pye, oh, it's because of the Americans and the CIA, and they get in there. I mean, God, there, there was that wonderful interview with uh, Andrew Neil and Ken Livingston, who and Livingston said that, of course, the reason why Venezuela was doing badly was because of all of the American sanctions. And uh, Andrew Neil, in that horribly prepared, said, well, there are no sanctions. I mean, in fact, and that wasn't exactly true, and I think he may not have exactly said that. There were actually sanctions introduced, I think, by Obama, possibly by George Bush against the exportation of guns and military weapons to Venezuela. But I don't think that was the kind of sanctions they were worried about, particularly affecting the economy of Venezuela. No, no, it was the sanctions. What sanctions? And he said, well, the Venezuelan ambassador told me. (laughs) Really? Oh, well, the Venezuelan ambassador told you, well, it must be true then, mustn't it? Apparently, anyway, we we have to deconstruct our borders because climate and stuff, so... And then, probably, if, if Michael D. lives long enough, he can be king of the world. When there are no borders, it's just the world. We can make Michael D. president of the world. Although I think king of the world is better. I think, Michael, that all of this talk of removing borders, lots of it has been said about it, but one of the arguments against it that I don't actually hear brought up, actually really ever, other than when I'm making it, although I'm, I assume it does, I think that all of this talk of, of removing borders and... Uh, letting anyone into the country, that sort of thing, is undemocratic for this reason. Democracies hold that citizenship is precious, that citizens are the owners of the country, or at least the people who must be represented by those running the country. 
Mm-hmm. So if you remove borders, if you let anyone move in and out at will, if you, it seems to me to be a direct attack on the value of being a citizen. And anything that reduces the value of being a citizen devalues the democracy upon its base. Because if everyone is transient and there's no limit to who can come in, why do you care what those people say, given that they might not be there tomorrow? Then they have no deep links to your country. That, I think, is actually the, the argument against. I think if a country decides they want to have effectively no border and allow anyone in, and that is what the citizens want, well, it's perfectly legitimate to do that. But there seems to be these movements where people in particular positions have decided that that's what the people want, despite, um, shall we say, Michael, <laughs> a growing body of evidence that that's not actually what anyone wants. You see, because, Gary, we are ultimately all citizens of the world, and the very notion of the idea of a country or a nation or a state is just simply a social construct. And it has been created by the powers of the privileged in order to defend the vested and what's the phrase? Something interests. The embedded interest? No, I can't remember. This is a Marxist phrase. I can't remember. It's from Capital talking about. Anyway, it's the, 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 the privilege of the bourgeoisie and, and, and the property-owning classes that they want to use this to, to embed their, their privilege. But you're right. There is no such thing, really, as a country. They're just random lines that we have drawn. And as a result of a series of accidents that one person speaks one language and somebody else speaks another language, and that's it. But really, we're just citizens of the world. We are, in fact, Gary, just what we are made of a, uh, the of stardust. But we're all made of stardust. We're all just sitting on this little rock. We all have to get along and sing Kumbaya together. There are only two... There, are, Gary, by the way, let's not overstate the problem. There are only two billion people, according to Pew, that would like to come to live in Europe. It's not everybody. Many of the Chinese people would stay in China. And I would say probably, on the basis of my last trip to them, the lack of decent Chinese food, at least in Ireland. Have you ever seen the research, Michael, on what happens when there is a large flood of people into an area and those people do not share common identity characteristics with you? Now, that doesn't have to be race. That can be religion. It can be culture. It can be any manner of things. But the research on what happens when areas become more diverse in ways where those are not maintained, where it becomes diverse in a sort of dissolving fashion, is not very good. Yeah, yeah, I, I, am, I am aware of such research. Putnam, actually, and Putnam is not a man of the right, in Bowling Alone and in other works, talks about this, the erosion of social trust and, and social capital, which takes place. And he says this regretfully, and this tends to happen when you have uh, situations where communities go from being fundamentally homogeneous to being increasingly diverse, that you see the erosion of, of, of that kind of social capital and you see the erosion, the erosion of trust. And but that, you see, isn't such a problem in a totalitarian state, but in a democracy, we kind of run on trust. In Western European culture, and when I say Western, actually not Western European, Western, because Western culture isn't just European. But the great thing, Michael, about that is that People feel a deep need to have identities. And so what we've seen in countries where things like that have happened, and you can see it all throughout Europe where there have been periods where there have been uh, movements of people large enough that they've been able to not to integrate into the society into which they moved, but to basically self-sustain. And you see that particularly in Germany. Um, you had issues with the Turkish communities there because... 
it reached a certain size. France also. The problem you have there is that I am unaware of any country which has those sorts of um, pockets of identity without any strong central identity to build it together, which in any way functions as a democracy. And in countries which are not democratic and where, let's say, the Americans have tried to install democracy, but the countries are tribalistic and identitarian, democracy has either largely failed immediately, failed when support was taken away immediately, or managed to continue on in a sort of song and pony type form, which seems to be primarily about extracting as much resources as you can from the country for your own people while fucking everyone else. Yes. Not the case, I think, that you have to have some kind, actually, of homogeneous population in order to produce some a reasonably stable democracy. You can have all sort. You can have all sorts of diversity. However, it does seem to be the case. What in that case? I'm thinking of the United States and what sociologists in the United States have said is, you do need some kind of overarching supranational identity where all of the various diverse populations can come together and say okay we are diverse we are different but we do share we do all participate in this idea that there is some point at which we come together where we 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 emote legally culturally spiritually whatever we can come together with this the United States is a different kind of thing because it's not a it's not it's not a nation based on an evolution of a population which with similar ethnic, linguistic, religious characteristics, which is what is the case in, mostly in Europe. The United States is was born in a sense out of an idea and the idea of America and what it meant to be American, and that in a sense was the idea of America as a republic of laws, and therefore in a sense the the, the overarching constant. Uh, the overarching point at which Americans came together was around the American go- system of governance and the Constitution and what that represented as as a values. Because they are they're not simply just principles of organizing a society, but they're principles are based on a set of values and reckon certain things being valuable. But you do while you can have the diversity all you like, but you do have to have a point at which all of the people can say, okay, we are all different, but we do come together at this point. That's not necessarily seems to be what's happening in Europe. No, I I think the interesting thing, or the problematic thing, is that we've seen a devaluation of citizenship and a move towards the removal of borders on the basis that they're unjust and that is the highest sin. We've had, So we've seen increased numbers of migration, and we've seen pretty substantial fall in the civic ideal that national identity should be celebrated and should be kept strong. And one of those things on its own could be a problem. The combination of all of them together is unlikely to work out terribly well. There was one, Actually, there was one thing, Michael, before we left, I was curious about your opinion on quickly. Yeah. So this happened during the week. With the Russian invasion of Ukraine, obviously, Russia has been removed from a lot of international things there's no wish to be seen with them they're not getting invited to anyone you know sports people aren't being invited to play if they're from russia but this i thought was a particularly interesting one because the russian government were wasn't so much that they were excluded they were actively told that you're not going to be invited and so and this happened during the week 
this as reported by the AFP. The Auschwitz Museum came out and said that because of the war in Ukraine, Russia will not be invited to the ceremony marking 78 years since the Red Army liberated Auschwitz. I'm just curious what you uh, what you think about that, Michael. Hmm. Well, I suppose you could say that there is a body of opinion which says that the Russians are engaged in what is essentially a genocidal war against the Ukraine. By a genocidal war, we mean that the, the outcome of this war would basically mean that the Ukraine as a nation and the Ukrainians as a people would cease to exist. And that is pretty well what we mean by genocide. And therefore, to invite a country which is engaged in a genocidal war to an event commemorating the liberation of people from that place which became the emblem of genocide, the totem, if you like, of genocide in Europe uh, under the Nazis, would be a very strange and incongruous thing to do. Now, I could recognise that it's, it's, it's rather odd that you would say, but it was the Red Army, it was the Russians, in fact, that liberated Auschwitz. And now they're being told that they can't come to, to, to commemorate that fact. But they're, I suppose if they were going to invite individual men or women who were there present on, on that day in, a, in Poland and were there and were part of the, the army, which in fact went in, and invited them in a personal capacity to thank them and to represent the men and women that are not, who died to get there and who are, have long since died after uh, the words then you could say well that might be a thing to do but that to invite the the representatives of the of the of, of russia today and it's russia remember it's not the soviet union so it's not it's it we're not talking about a question of simple identity there isn't a simple historical continuity russia is the largest remnant of the soviet union but it's not the soviet union why what what is your opinion gary and strangely enough, I didn't really think about it before I uh, I asked you about it, Michael. Because my initial and only reaction was, oh, I wonder what Michael will say about that. <laughs> I think right. there is a tendency to dehumanise anyone um, we think has acted in a particularly villainous way. And because this is about World War II, you see it particularly with Hitler. There is a desire to strip away all human from them, anything they may have done that was in any way justifiable so that we can present them in the worst light possible, which is largely meaningless considering usually the people you're dealing with have done plenty that you can hold up as examples of terrible behaviour. But ultimately, I mean, Russia was largely the Soviet Union, uh, I would argue, and they did do this. They did liberate Auschwitz. They did fight against the Nazis. Now, they also killed you know, tens of millions of their own people, but I don't. it, it seems to me childish nearly to be unable to say yes you did this thing and this was a great thing it was something that needed to be done but you are also doing something now which you know we cannot condone but these are two separate things so yeah that would be my general take on it i I think just because russia is presently engaged in a war is presently engaged in whatever kind of behavior does not change the past of what the country has done for good or ill. And there are certainly things in Russian history that were good and needed to be done and which should continue to be celebrated or at least commemorated in many of those instances. And I generally don't like 
people fucking around with historical things, which is where I would class this. Well, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that idea. As, yeah, history is history. It is, it is written. It is over. I mean, our understanding of it will change and evolve, but liberation of Auschwitz happened. Uh, it was liberated by a certain group of people who came from a certain country. That is undeniable. I don't know. I, I can, I, I can, I can see, I can see both sides of the argument. I would, my, would, my feeling would still tend because I'm fairly tediously hardline on this, on, 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 on the war. Uh, that I would say that there is a fundamental incongruity to commemorate the liberation of people who are being subject to a genocide by inviting representatives of a state which is engaged in an attempt uh, to achieve the genocide of another people. I just think there's a, there will be a moral incongruity there, which is too great. I, I would say if, if, if they were listening and they wanted a suggestion of how they could do this, then I, my, what I previously said, I would see if there were people alive yet from that time who and invite them uh, in a private capacity to attend and to celebrate what they did rather than to celebrate or to in some sense, represent the the, the 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 current regime which is there. If anybody if anybody wants a suggestion, there you go. I somewhat feel, and I'm not entirely sure I can articulate why I feel this, that doing this is in some way disrespectful to the people who died there. I can yeah I I, I can see that yeah I can understand that I can understand that. I think it'd be interesting, for example, to ask some of the people that are still alive. There are some people, I think, still alive who are in Auschwitz or in other uh, extermination camps. But maybe what they think. Maybe they did. Maybe they were asked. Maybe this is a consequence of that. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I can, I can, I can see what you're saying. I can, I, I understand that. So we, um, what did we have? We had removal of borders. We had the Holocaust. We had dead children, and we had. Something I assume was just as depressing. Oh yes, the the possibility of political violence and the man whose car was attacked, a man whose car was attacked by a savage deer. Yeah, so I think we've hit every point on that checklist. Yeah, I think that'll that'll keep us going until next Sunday. Although you won't be you won't be here next Sunday. Is that right? You will be in Venice, and and I in fact will be in Belfast, the Venice of the North. It's, yeah, it's it's. I'm sure there are canals. I'm sure there must be a canal in Belfast. I know that there there are shipyards in Venice and shipyards in uh, Belfast. So they're fundamentally, let's face it, basically the same thing. I'm sure there's a joke to be made between Venice and the Titanic sinking, but I just, I haven't pulled it together yet. Maybe next, not next week, the week after we'll have worked it out by then. But until, uh, and I, I'll be thinking of you as I'm drinking my coffee in Belfast and you're sipping on your, you're in Harry's bar, trying, trying. To get to Harry's bar and have a Negroni. No, yes, you won't. You won't like a Negroni. Have something else. I'll get a virgin strawberry daiquiri. <laughs> yeah, a virgin. I can't imagine Gary. You drink. Oh, stop, please. You've seen it. <laughs> I had forgotten that. That is true. Yeah. That is absolutely true. <laughs> well, we were back Sunday fortnight. All things being equal. All the best. Have a good time.